guys, good morning. How are you today? Good to so that's okay. I guess we're all tired. Um, last week, I had the opportunity to share a little bit with you about a trip my wife Tina and I made over to Istanbul to, to work alongside a couple of uh, people that our church is helping support. Um, dealing with the refugee crisis that they're facing and getting to meet some of these refugees firsthand and, uh, and work among them. Today is a part two of sorts on that, but instead of talking about the current refugee issues that we saw while we were there, instead what I want to talk to you about today is biblical sites and archaeology because Turkey is filled with them. When I say land of the Bible, right, where, where does your mind go? Israel, absolutely, right? Except that I was sitting down, like, looking at the New Testament and looking especially at books like Acts and Revelation, but all these writings of Paul, and looking even at early church history, and, and, and I can't claim this, but I feel like it. Turkey is like a contender in the ring. When it comes to the land of the Bible, there are more sites in the current nation of Turkey than, let me give you an example. Revelation, it was written to seven churches, places like Ephesus and Smyrna and Laodicea and Philadelphia. You've heard of these, right? All of them in Turkey. There's places like Tarsus. Paul was from there. You've heard of it in Turkey. There's places like Antioch, which was a, a, an early center of Christian activity and, and, and one of the, the megachurches of its day or megacenters of its day that, that was responsible for deploying people out in Christ's name. Where is it at? Turkey. Then, of course, there's letters in the New Testament like Ephesians, which is in Turkey, and First and Second Timothy, who was in Ephesus, which is in Turkey, and other unknown places people don't realize like Colossus, Colossians in Turkey. Then you can look at things like Noah's Ark, tucked up there on Mount Ararat, according to Genesis, in Turkey. And the list goes on and on and on. The place drips with history of the Bible. And that's not even to mention getting into early church history. You look at the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople, the Council of Ephesus, the Council of Chalcedon, the big heavy hitters that you've never heard of but that have shaped Christianity for the last 1,600 years, all of them in Turkey. And what I want to do today is share some of our experiences standing in these places and visiting these sites. And, and, and I love this kind of stuff because I think it's so easy for us, isn't it, to read the Bible and it feels like a little story. And it is. But when I say story, does your mind just start flirting the margins of make-believe? Kind of like you're reading Tolkien or Mother Goose but I love standing in those places because it reminds me that this thing that feels theoretical was about a real God writing to real people in a real time and a real place and a real culture. And for me, interfacing with those places and that culture of old has brought the Bible and God to life for me. In new ways, and my hope is that today it'll do a little bit of the same for you. Now, while we were over there, 
three kinds of ways you can approach these, these, these places of the Bible and church history. One is the places where there is like no vestige or, or even shadow of what once was left. I remember we were standing in the, the, the district of Katakoi, which was the ancient city of Chalcedon. In 451 AD, church leaders from around the, the Mediterranean world gathered in this place to wrestle out the question, how the heck is Jesus both God and man at the same time, and how does that work? Well, it was in that place that they hammered out a definition that has shaped Christianity of every stripe and variety ever since. And I remember standing there in this intersection of Katakoi, looking around, going, you never know. It's traffic, it's stoplights, it's cafes, it's restaurants, it's nightclubs. It's a place really where the Turkish hipsters go to live in this day and age, and you would never know the significance of the place you were on. Then, there were the places that were fabricated. You know what I mean? Well, here's where we think the Virgin Mary may have lived 300 years after she died in Ephesus. You know that kind of thing going on? We were at the Top Copy Palace outside of Istanbul, and they boast a very famous museum about the history of Islam, which, of course, taps into the history of the Old Testament and New Testament as well. Let me tell you what we got to see in this museum Okay, brace yourself for this, guys. I got to see Moses' staff, all right? I got to see King David's sword, Joseph's turban. I got to see John the Baptist's actual skull, right? And if that isn't exciting you enough, the highlight, I mean the apex of this museum, I got to see not only some of the beard clippings, but also some of the fingernail clippings of the prophet Muhammad, Aren't you just like bursting out of your skin right now? And what was fascinating walking through this place is how crowded it was. And not by gawkers like me, but by the devoted. People coming to this place, not only with curiosity, but with a sense of reverence and superstition and Awe, standing before these supposed relics, and the whole time, all I have playing through my head is this old Martin Luther quote who had to deal with a similar issue of supposed relics in his day as well, where he said, you know, if all the original pieces of the cross of Jesus that are on display were gathered into one place, we'd have enough wood to build St. Peter's Cathedral. That's not what I'm talking about when I talk about these biblical places and the culture in which the Bible is situated. I'm talking about the places of history, the places of the real God working among a real people and a real time and place that had an impact for me. And for time's sake today, I want to narrow it down to one area, one city, so to speak. Here it is. Izmir. Istanbul is up here. 
But if you took about a seven-hour car drive or about an hour plane flight, you end up at this city of two to three million people, comparable to Chicago, located on the Aegean Sea called Izmir. Now, Izmir actually happens to be one of the seven churches of Revelation. If you have no idea what I mean by that, John, that, that early disciple of Jesus, wrote a letter. It's the last book you'll find in the Bible called Revelation to seven churches all up and down the coast of the Aegean in Turkey. One of them is Smyrna. And maybe you can see Smyrna tucked in the language there. Do you see it? The smear? You see it in there? We didn't know that going in, so it's like, hey, rock on. Pleasant surprise. And when I found out that we were in Smyrna, I had one quest. One quest, and it was to find some kind of history, some kind of commemoration, some kind of vestige of the past of a, a church saint of old. A bishop, a bishop who was overseeing the Christian community in the city in the 4th century A.D., in the time of those great councils, a young man who has gone down into a certain sense of infamy today, a bishop who was known for his extreme generosity and also as one through whom God worked supernaturally and miraculously through to heal and to show his way, he goes by the name of Nicholas. He was later sainted. And my quest when I was in Izmir for those couple of days was one thing. I'm going to find Santa Claus. <laughs> all that really remained and all that we could really find was what was supposed to be an Orthodox church that was in all actuality a Catholic church behind 10-foot walls with barbed wire on top and gates locked with chains with no activity and no life. It looked like it was still a used church, but apparently not on the day that we happened to be there. Peeking through this little crack in the wall, hoping to see what was supposed to be some kind of plaque or monument or, or, or vestige of the saint that was once from there. But the real reason that we went to Izmir was because of another city. A city that isn't inhabited anymore, but a city that was just like all that and more in New Testament days. It's a city called Ephesus. It's a city that lies about 60 kilometers away. And so Tina and I found ourselves in the city of Izmir knowing basically like yes and no in Turkish and that even that too well, trying to navigate bus schedules and train schedules and finding ourselves in places we didn't belong and stranded on train platforms that we took by mistake, dealing with people who didn't speak a word of English, but God bless Google Translate, and through a series of events making our way into that once great city of old, the city of Ephesians, the city of First and Second Timothy, the city of Revelation, the city of the eastern half of the Roman Empire in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, Rome ruled all, but to the east was Ephesus. Think about it like New York 
and L.A. It was a city that boasted over 250,000 people, a city that had working sewage and running water in its day. And at the center of this city was a goddess, a goddess who was revered through this half of the empire, who went by the name of Artemis. And to know Ephesus, you have to know Artemis, because Artemis is the heart and soul of this city. They have a museum nearby, and we happened to visit it with, with various finds on display. And let me show you a statue of Artemis, one that they thought was too nice to kind of leave out in the ruins anymore. If you're looking at this, and I know the picture isn't great, but she's a mother goddess, evidenced by her fact for a very unique need for a certain kind of brassiere. Um, a goddess of fertility right? Overflowing is the imagery here. And yet, ironically, a virgin. A virgin huntress and one who is fierce about it. You remember Mean Girls? You ever see that? You know that movie? Are you like looking at me just like, what are you talking about? Okay, you remember Regina George? Artemis is Regina George, okay? She's beautiful, she's fierce, she knows it, and she will destroy you by it. This is Artemis. And ironically, the cult of Artemis became something that, that mothers with young children who were expecting would come to. Because remember, in the ancient world, the gods were something that you feared. And the fear was that Artemis, being this fierce virgin huntress, might strike me and my child dead in childbirth because obviously I'm not a virgin. And so they would seek her and pay homage to her and give offerings up to her, hoping to placate her, to withhold her hand of judgment from striking you down. And this has huge implications for reading New Testament letters like 1 Timothy. And her temple became this place to which people from all over would travel to pay homage in this great Roman Eastern city. This next picture is kind of lame too, but it's the best I could find. It's an artist's representation of what that temple of Artemis, one of the ancient wonders of the world in its day, probably looked like. So when I hear that we're going to Ephesus, for me, this is number one on the list. I want to see this, right? Let me show you a picture I took at the Temple of Artemis when we happened to be there. Now, I want to clarify a couple things. Do you see that castle in the back? Yeah, that ain't it. Do you see that building right there in the back? That ain't it either. All that remains is this abandoned construction site, right? It's a pile of rubble. Even this pillar that you see over here, 
Archaeologists stacked that up. They found those stones on the ground, and they did it just to kind of give a sense of what one of the columns might look like, which immediately after you're leaning on it like this, you're like, ooh, right? You know what I mean? This is it. This is all that remains. It was funny. The tour guide was telling us that we were going to go to the temple of Artemis first. And I'm like, yeah, we get the most time. There's like, yeah, we're going to get it out of the way. Like, what? It's like, yeah, just believe me, just get it out of the way. And it struck me. This once great goddess of this great city of power and opulence and splendor and glory that people would give their lives for, that people would travel from all over the world to see. There it is. It's what remains. And it was so telling to me, standing there, thinking of this thing that we call human glory, this pride we take in our achievements and our accomplishments, this pride we take into what we can build and do and discover. And there's this passage of Isaiah that just kept coming back to me as I was thinking about this, where he, he writes, you know what? All people are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. It's beautiful in a moment, isn't it? But grass withers. Flowers fall. All of our great glory and accomplishment is Nothing in the grand scheme. But the word of God, that's what lasts forever. That's what endures. Now, the center of the Ephesian ruins is a picture that you may have seen on Google and other sources. It's an amphitheater. It's an amphitheater that seats 25,000 people. And the picture I took here that you're looking at is of this, this, this main walkway coming in called the Agora, which was basically the strip mall of its day. It's a shopping place. You can see these stones lining the way, each, so to speak, dividing the storefronts that once existed that people would travel through on their way to this great amphitheater of old. I tried to get a size of the scope for you in this, uh, this next picture, but I walked about three quarters of the way to the top. And do you see that person on the stage at the bottom? That's my wife, Tina. What was fascinating is that if she talked in a voice like this, I could hear that she was talking but I couldn't articulate it. And I got to turn my mic off for the next part. And I had this moment sitting there up at the top going, you know, at Fellowship of Faith, it's like 65 feet from the stage to the back wall. We've got a $100,000 sound system, and we still can't get people to hear right in the back. In the third century BC, they build this thing, and someone can whisper on a stage and hear it. This is the glory 
of Ephesus. And by the way, this picture that I show you, which I thought basically was Ephesus, constitutes about 5% of the ruins you will see of that city today. And I was standing in this place, and the story from the book of Acts started coming to mind. And maybe you remember it. Paul had traveled to Ephesus, bringing the good news that, in fact, Jesus, not Caesar, is the Lord, and preaching the forgiveness and the hope and the life that could be found in his name. And people were turning to it. Some people, that is. But not all. Because there was a number of shopkeepers along the Agora, silversmiths, actually, who, who devoted their life and their trade to making shrines and souvenirs to the goddess Artemis. But it's fascinating that when you have Jesus, you don't really need Artemis anymore. When you have Jesus, you don't have to consume yourself with placating the wrath of Artemis anymore. And they saw Paul undermining their trade. The business was going down. They were losing money. You can read the story in Acts 18 through 20. And they dragged these early Christians. And they dragged them into this arena. And they put them on this stage. And the mob is ready to tear them apart. The Roman soldiers who are garrisoned have to come in and try to make sense of it. But even when you have a company of soldiers, it is no match for a mob of 25,000 people wanting your blood. And Acts says, for two hours they shouted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And I stood there realizing I could hear Tina whisper. And what that sound must have been like with 25,000 shouting Artemis' name. What would that be like for you to be that person? To be my wife, standing alone, with 25,000 shouting at you and wanting to tear you apart. And it's so great. You know what it says in Acts? Paul's like, guys, let me in there. Let me talk to him. Like, are, are you kidding me even, right? Right here. Now, ancient cities have the same issues that modern cities have as well. Because when you have 25,000 people at a show using uh, drinking beer all day, uh, you know, the, uh, the bathroom becomes a necessity. I've decided I want to take pictures of ancient toilets from around the world, so I'm sharing one with you today. Um, here it is, and you can see you don't really get a lot of privacy. Um, just pull up a seat and talk with your friends. It was kind of funny. They don't let you sit on them anymore unfortunately, but you can get close enough, you know, get your eyes up and nose up close if that does it for you. And uh, apparently reading material was sparse in that day because you could see all this graffiti engraved into the seats where people with, well, nothing else to do as they bide the time were carving in symbols and their names. The tour guide told us that that the rich, the wealthy of the city, would actually send their slaves to these seats ahead of them to sit on them in their stead until they got there in order to warm them up. Fascinating. Now this Agora, 
where the people would buy and sell, and, and, and the commerce of Ephesus was driven. Just some pictures of how it went through these other ruins, up hills and down hills and around corners and branching out in various ways. And it seemed like every step you took, there was another inscription, another relief, a statue or, or, or something to some god or goddess, to some emperor or hero, to fortune or providence seeking some kind of help. I counted my pictures because I'm like, oh, Greek inscription, click, Greek inscription, click, like 850 pictures out of Ephesus. It's Ridiculous, but there they were, everywhere you went, heralding, seeking, commemorating some god or goddess in some kind of way. Here's one that you might find interesting. This goddess is a goddess of warfare, but better put, a goddess of victory. In Greek, her name would be pronounced Nike. Nike in Greek translates to something like overcome, conquer, win. You might know her better by the anglicized version of Nike. And I don't know if the tour guide is just kind of messing with us on this, but they claim that these florals right here are the inspiration of the Nike swoop. But more significantly than this is this. Because throughout this city, as you'd walk through the Agora where these people would be buying and selling and, and doing life and doing business, there were series of gates. And oftentimes at these gates, there would be idols or inscriptions or reliefs, as you see it, to some kind of god or goddess, but often to an emperor or one of the gods who stood behind the spirit of Rome. And just like today in the ancient world, good stuff wasn't free. And as you'd go to the Agora to do your shopping, to do your business, to meet with your friends, or do whatever it was you were going to do that day, you would have to pass through these gates where there would be guards that were, well, I'll put it in our terms, charging admission. But now let me put it in their terms of their day offering you a little bit of incense next to a little altar where you'd pay a little bit of money and you'd sprinkle that incense and proclaim something like, Caesar is Lord, to give him his due and pay him his homage before you could enter and go in on your way. Now, some of these emperors took this more seriously than others. And what I'd like to briefly introduce you today is a man named Domitian. He had a temple in Ephesus that was incredible. And at one time, a statue of himself stood at this temple, and Tina took this awful picture of me next to it, trying to just give a size and scope of how big that statue originally was. Now, since the days of Caesar, Julius Caesar, a deification of the Caesars in the Roman Empire took place. 
But they embraced it in the Roman East, in cities like Ephesus, I'll tell you, in a way that was beyond belief. And no one to date had embraced it more in a stronger way than the statue of this guy right here, Domitian. Most emperors, when they were called God, would kind of do the sheepish look and go, well, yeah, after I die, you could deify me. But in his day, Domitian claimed to be a God incarnate. In fact, according to the historian Suetonius, he demanded that his wife address him as my Lord and my God. So guys, we like him already, right? And I want you for a moment to imagine what it's like being a Christian in the first century A.D., living in a city like Ephesus and you need a gallon of milk. Your friend lives up the road. There's a great show going on at the amphitheater and you got tickets. And you come to these gates and you have this moment what do you do? What do you do? Do you give a little bit of money to buy a little bit of incense to say a little insignificant prayer that Caesar is Lord? Or do you walk away and lose the prosperity and ease of life and physical needs that lie just beyond those gates. What do you do? Now, there's a Bible passage I want to show you today. And it's better for you to actually look at it in a Bible than see it on a screen. In your chairs are Bibles, and I invite you to pull one out. And I want to invite you to open up to Revelation chapter 13. It is the final book in the Bible, so please don't start with the front cover. The final book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 13. Now today people read this letter from John to these Christians in this city of Ephesus that goes by the name of Revelation in so many crazy and outlandish ways. People, unfortunately, have been conditioned to think that somehow and in some way that Revelation is some futuristic blueprint of events or timeline sequence of things that are yet to come and take place. And I want to encourage you with something, that if you're reading Revelation that way, you're doing it wrong. That's not what the letter is. Revelation is a highly subversive, coded letter written by a church leader under the watch and thumb of the Roman Empire to a fledgling group of Christians in a city called Ephesus trying to figure out what to do and how to function and how to survive and how to maintain their integrity and faith. Revelation is not about the future. Revelation is about now. 
And understand that when I say now, I'm saying that from John's perspective, 90 AD perspective, in his day. Now, I'd like to survey through some things of Revelation 13 with you today. I encourage you to follow along. I'm going to jump around and you can read to fill in the gaps. But it says this, And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like the lion. And the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and his great authority. One of the beasts, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Confused already? It gets worse. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise authority. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name in his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, nation. All inhabitants of the earth worshipped the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. And John writes, he who has an ear, let him hear. In other words, listen up. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints kind of struck me as I was reading this at 9 o'clock. We have a, a baptism at 10.30, and this, this family is going to bring this most precious gift of God forward. And, and, and families here at Fellowship of Faith will often pick a Bible verse or two that they want to kind of serve as a moniker or, or indent in their life. In all my times of doing ministry, I never saw someone pick this verse 10 as their life verse. I've never seen someone put that as a tattoo or something. Yeah, if anyone's to go into captivity, he will go. Uh, Wolfords, you might want to rethink it before we water up, all right? It goes on in verse 11. I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised authority on the first beast in his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast with the fatal wound that had been healed. He performed great and miraculous signs, even fire from heaven. Because of signs he was given to do, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image so it could speak and caused all who refused to worship to be killed. He forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand and on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. 
This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number, for it's man's number, 666. Now let me ask you, after reading this, are you just kind of having this moment of, huh? Or in your mind, are you imagining some future end time scenario where some monster is going to come out of the sea that's breathing fire and devouring people like something out of a fantasy movie? With people magically appearing with signs on their foreheads and on their hands and numbers floating in the sky. If you are, you are reading it wrong. Because Revelation is a highly coded, politically subversive letter written to a Christian community in this city trying to figure out what it means in their context to call on Jesus' name. Now, I don't have time to make my case, but may I just submit to you for simplicity that the beast you are reading about in this letter is a code. It's a code so Rome won't know what he's saying. It's a code so he can slip under the radar and speak to his people in a way that they will understand. Can I submit to you today that Rome is the beast? Look at the beast. Who can stand against the beast? And people everywhere coming to worship the beast. No one allowed to buy or sell unless they give homage to the beast. Which begs a question. How do you know that people paid? In today's day and age, you get a ticket, right? But that's because we got paper aplenty. They had line jumpers as well. How do you know people paid? How do you know people did it? Many scholars will speculate that what they would do after you bought your incense and pinched it on the altar and offered a prayer in Caesar's name, that they would dip their finger in the ash and mark you like you get a stamp when you go to certain venues today. Maybe here, or maybe here. And no one can buy or sell without the mark of the beast. And if that isn't convincing enough, it's fascinating to me. That Caesar Nero, who stood right at the beginning of this day and age, killed himself by shoving a dagger in his face and sustaining a head wound. But the empire went on. It's fascinating to me that Vespasian, who followed him, who was leading laying siege to Jerusalem and left his son Titus in his place, also sustained a head wound and lived. Are you seeing the code? Are you seeing what's going on? Are you seeing the beast? It's also fascinating to me that in the ancient world, in Greek and in Hebrew, they used the same symbols for letters and numbers alike. And if you were to take the numerical value of the name Caesar Nero... The number is 666. And if you think that's speculative, you can look in your Bible and see a footnote that says an alternate reading says 616, which certain manuscripts from ancient times have. Because if you do a little common change they did in their day to the way that you spelled Caesar Nero, the number comes out to 616 instead. 
What is John writing? I know, guys, I know the glory of the beast. And what was fascinating to me was not so much the gates, but what laid right behind them. I want to show you one last picture today. You can call it a temple, but it's not quite right. But let's go with it. The temple to the four emperors. Because after Nero killed himself, Rome went through a civil war of sorts, and four emperors in rapid succession took his place. And one, two, three, four. Their statues stood at the gateway to this, better put, interrogation room in their day. Because what do you do when you walk up to the gate and you're faced with that choice and the guard sees you and he goes, wait a minute, Caesar is Lord. Do you just walk away? Do they let you just walk away? Or is that treason? And they would stand at a gate like this, the government official with the guards on his side, and they would try to, try to win you off. Just do it. Just burn a little incense. Who cares? You know what you believe in your heart. Who cares what you do? No one cares. Just do it. And I'm sure many did. But for those early followers of Jesus who refused to betray their allegiance to him and call on another God's name, they would be brought to this place before the four emperors and given one last chance. Say the prayer, Caesar is Lord. Or step through the gates. And it was through those gates that those early believers were stretched out, strung up, beaten and flogged, some to the point of death. And I had this moment standing there at these gates, knowing what lied right behind it, asking myself, would I do it? Would I do it? One of the interesting cultural experiences for me in Turkey was how cautious I became about standing out as a Christian. And I remember standing there at that place going, would I do it? Woven throughout Revelation is a theme, it's a word. I shared it with what you once already, Nike, Nike. Woven throughout is a message from John to this, this early church, overcome, conquer, win. And it struck me standing there at those gates, what it must have been like for those early believers to hear, hear words like this. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat 
from the tree of life. Let me read others. To him who overcomes, I will give a white stone with a new name. To him who overcomes, I will give authority over the nations. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sit with my father on his. You know, to me, in the United States, those are theoretical words. But what is it like to sit in the glory of Rome at those gates, standing there before this with the words of John going through your mind to him who overcomes? I will give you authority over nations, even Rome itself. To him who overcomes, he will sit on a throne, not Caesar. To him who overcomes, though you face death. life. It's just a little of what we got to experience in Ephesus. My hope today is that somehow and in some way the Bible came alive a little bit more for you. Maybe that you're reading it and thinking about it in a slightly different way. And that it's impressed upon you that it's about a real God working among real people in real time and real places. And it's not just an ancient Ephesus. It's here among you people today, too. I encourage you, open your ears. He who has an ear, let him hear to what God might have to say to you.